Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Uh, we've been going through the book of Galatians, so we're going to jump right back in. If you have your Bible with you, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, all the way through 26. If you need a Bible, there's some around the room. If you don't have one, no worries. We'll throw it up on these big TVs. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Um, while you're flipping there, I need to tell you about a problem that I have. It's a massive problem. I, Nathan Sanchez, pastor of Christ Chapel Bible College Ministry, I'm lactose intolerant, and yet I eat ice cream all the time. It is an issue. I cannot avoid or resist a cookies and cream milkshake from Chick-fil-A, or when my wife and I go to melt, I look at the vegan options, and I'm like, those sound disgusting. And so I get the normal good stuff, um, and I eat it all the time, and I always find myself uncomfortable and cramping and asking myself, how did I get here? And it's like, well, you're lactose intolerant. That's how you got here. And so I choose to go back to mac and cheese and all these dairy things. And I, I'm acting as if I don't know what's waiting for me on the other side of those things. Um, and I go back to it all the time. And I find myself asking, how did I get here? What have I done? What did I do? Um, and I can hear my wife's voice in my head right now saying, you've done it to yourself, bro. Like, this is because of you. Um, but that's just a, a funny example. There's some a ton of other things in my life from past and present where I end up asking myself that question of how did I get here in college in the past? It was determining I was never going to get drunk again. And then here it is, 1 a.m. one day, and I'm walking out of my friend's house, a little too giggly, a little too loud, stumbling, and that moment of conviction hits me. And I'm like, what did I do? Or present, I'm super annoyed with that person, and I am telling myself I need to be compassionate and loving towards them, and yet there I am interacting with them, just getting frustrated and being rude and being angry. And I realize I pointed over there. I promise I'm not annoyed with any one of you. It's just a generic thing. I, I'm sure you're, you're great. But um, I find myself always asking, man, I determined not to do this. I had every good intention not to do this, minus the mac and cheese, but how did I get here? What have I done? And that is familiar to all of us, right? That's a familiar experience and a familiar question that we all have of, I had every good intention to not do this. How did I get here? And it's true that every believer, every Christian has the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit that we just sang about dwelling within us, enlightening us, empowering us to walk in the will of God and towards the image of Jesus, being formed in the image of Jesus. But if that's the case, then why do we find ourselves repeatedly going back to the things that we swore we would never do again or never do in the first place? Why is our genuinely authentic attempt to live out a life that mirrors and mimics the way of Jesus such a hard process? And why is it that our real deep desire to live in the freedom from the things that once enslaved us and that we know won't bring any glory to God actually so difficult to walk out? It's like we feel this tug of war, right, between the new self that we always talk about and the old self. Why is that such a hard, difficult fight? And why is it that oftentimes we feel like our Christian life, our discipleship to Jesus, our every good intention and best effort to follow him are just an inescapable rhythm of two steps forward, 
and one step back. Or if you're like me, sometimes it feels more like one step forward and two steps back, like I'm not making any progress at all. What I've found is that there is a moment, what I've come to believe, a space uh, between our impulse and our action. And it is in that moment that that tug of war is felt, that we feel and experience that tug of war and where the things that we do are determined between our impulse and our action. And that's what I want us to unpack and understand today. What is that war? What is that moment? What's going on there? Who's on either side of it? Uh, And how the heck are we supposed to navigate it? What is our role in it? And those are the kinds of questions that Paul is addressing in Galatians 5, 16 through 26. And he highlights for us that I I want us all to look at. He highlights a reality for us that we need to be aware of if we intend to pursue Jesus with everything we've got. So with that said, let's jump in. Uh, Verse 16. This is Paul. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're going to unpack that a lot more later. Focus on the next verse, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Your translation might say they are in conflict with one another. And let's stop right there. What Paul is saying, desires of the flesh— at war with the desires of the spirit. Desires of the spirit at war with the desires of the flesh. There is a war waging, and that war is waging within your soul. They're opposed to each other. There is major conflict, and it is intense to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So talk about being pulled in two different directions. Uh, I also want to highlight something else that Paul says. This is in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He explains the familiar battle this way. He says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And by the way, this is Paul, like varsity Christian, if there ever was one, talking. Just keep that in mind. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, which we're about to unpack. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? And then he goes on to say, But I see a war waging within me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He gets excruciatingly emo right there at the end. But what he makes clear is that there is a war waging within us between the spirit and between what he calls the flesh. And believers experience that war and feel that war like no other, right? And we need to understand what these two worlds look like. What, is the desires of the, what are the desires of the Spirit and what is the flesh? What is he talking about? Why are they in conflict with one another? Let's unpack all those things and let's start with the flesh. What the heck does that mean and what is Paul referring to? Um, here's how I want to start this conversation about the flesh because I want to leave no room for, for misconception. What Paul is not referring to when he talks about the flesh is your physical body. So he's not talking about your physical body as in the flesh. What I don't want you to hear and what the God of the universe doesn't want you to hear and what Paul isn't saying is that your body is evil. Remember that on the first page of scripture, the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything and he created male and female in his image, in his likeness. And then he looked at all of his creation with male and female, and he called it very good, and he delighted in it. So your body is not evil. Let's just set that now. 
you were not created with a body to despise because you were created out, in, out of an overflow of delight and love. You were created good and wonderful and beautiful, and you were absolutely adored by your creator. But when sin entered the picture, all of God's creation, including our bodies, kind of like Asher was pointing to at the beginning of this, is now broken and fractured, right? It, it fractured everything. What was once created good and wonderful and beautiful and whole, these things are now broken. Or another way to think about it, the beauty of God's good creation has been vandalized. Think of like a beautiful painting, a beautiful piece of art on a canvas, right? And then somebody just goes and takes a graffiti can and like vandalizes the thing. And not like the cool graffiti that's actually kind of like artistic, but like just straight up vandalism. God's good creation has been vandalized. It's been tainted and it has been perverted. And the way we see and treat our bodies and even objectify them now is a result of that. And so as a result of the fall, a result of that and sin entering into the world and also entering into us, we now have a sinful nature. And the desires that once led to wholeness are now disordered and lead us to brokenness. They are destructive. And so what Paul is referring to when talking about the flesh is our sinful nature, not our physical bodies, but our sinful nature. Now, again, I want to be careful when talking about all this because your body isn't evil and not all desire is bad desire. But more often than not, our sinful nature, right, what Paul is talking about, taints and perverts our desire. So to be clear, to give you a working definition, our sinful nature, our flesh, is marked by disordered and destructive desire. But how do we, how do we know which desires are good and which ones are bad? How do, how do we know which ones are destructive and disordered and which ones aren't? And how do we know if we're being taken over and influenced in those moments between impulse and action by the desires of our flesh or if we're being led by the desires of the Spirit? Well, a couple things. The first one we'll unpack a lot more later, but the desires of the Spirit will always pull you in the direction, if it's tug of war, in the, towards the image of Jesus. That's every time, that's where they are going to take you. The desires of the flesh, on the other hand, are going to do the exact opposite. And Paul says that the desires of the flesh are evident. They are obvious, the, what he calls the works of the flesh. And he goes on to list out a, a, ton of, a ton of examples. So pick up in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And then he goes on a rant. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list is not exhaustive. And then he goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Uh, Don't you just love how he ends with that heavy tone of reality at the end? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there is no way you can read this list of things and not see yourself in it. Right off the bat, sexual immorality, there Nathan is. Impurity and sensuality, just pile those on. Idolatry, I definitely do. I'm guilty of putting other things above God and worshiping things that I shouldn't. Then you tack on enmity and jealousy. Yep, fits of anger, that is a knife to the gut for me. Uh, Envy, I am all over the place on here. And if you don't see yourself on here, then I hate to be the one to break it to you. I'm not your counselor, but you have some massive self-awareness issues, okay? Um, These things, what Paul calls the works of the flesh, are supposed to be obvious. They are super familiar. They are 
evident. This is all stuff that we do all the time, right? Head nod, yes. This is all the stuff that we are just naturally gravitate towards as flesh-driven, sinful human beings. And the things that get us looking up, asking that question, man, how did I get here? What did I do? What am I doing? And here's, here's what's interesting that I want to highlight, and we're kind of going to work through this quickly. So if you have, we just, there's a lot to unpack. So if you have more questions, find me or anyone on staff afterwards. But most commentaries, most teachers uh, will break this text up into four different categories, all, all the things that Paul lists that point us to, um, to the areas of our life that are being driven by the flesh. And the first one, look at the first three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All of those revolve around this idea of sex and sexuality. And Paul says the first place to look are the decisions you're making around that. So the first area of your life that will let you know if you're being led by the flesh is your broken sexuality, right? And think about it. Sexual immorality is defined in scripture. It's used all over the time, all over the place as any act uh, of sex, right? Outside of the confines of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. And that is almost laughable to most of our world, right? It might be laughable to some of you in this room, but think about it for a second. Culture's view and our current worlds, our current culture's view of, of sex is super low. It's a very low view, and it's very selfish. At best, it's an emotional or physical craving to be satisfied. How can I get this to make me feel good? Uh, sometimes it's even just viewed as simply a recreational activity, like dating, right, which Ben has talked about in the past. But Christianity's view of sex and Jesus's view of sex is actually the highest view, right? It is this expression. It's not selfish at all. It's beautiful. It's profound, and it's powerful, and it should be protected and enjoyed within the confines of a committed covenant marriage, and it's actually this expression of selfless love. It's not selfish at all, and I think there's a reason why Paul starts here because of that, because the choices we make around this, or just to call it out, even the stupid, sinful, selfish choices someone else has made that have affected us, those shape us, right? We all have a history one way or another with this, and it shapes who we are, how we view ourselves, and it's a history that you can't really escape from or just brush off. And so he points to this first, of what are the choices that you're making around this? Because that is telling if you're being driven by the flesh. So that's category in area number one. The second one, idolatry and sorcery. He says your, your worship will be broken. You're in, created and designed to worship, but what you worship is a whole another thing. And idolatry and sorcery here are two things that are seeking something other than God. So that's category number two. Now, quick note. First category had three words in it. Second category has two words in it. This next category has eight. Check this out. He says, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. He pops off. It's nuts. And he, they all revolve around your relationships. And he says, your relationships are going to be broken. You're going to feel the tension if you're being driven by your flesh. And the point that he's making, which, by the way, just an observation if you want to be a Bible nerd with me for a second. Verse 15, going into this passage, Paul is talking about if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And then the last verse in our text today, 26, says, let us not become conceited or provoking one another or envying one another. He's just highlighting that there's a lot of relational tension and a lot of unhealthy relationships going on within the church that he's preaching to. Like, these are believers who are supposed to be loving and kind towards one another, and he's like, y'all aren't, and y'all are being driven by the flesh, and he calls them out. And the point that he's making is that the health or the unhealth of your personal relationships will tell you a ton about whether your life is being driven by the flesh 
or being led by the Spirit. So it's category number three. Category number four, he uses drunkenness and orgies and then says things like these. Um, and it's all about a broken reality. And here's, here's how I want to explain this one. Orgies here, um, which classic, Nathan, here we are. I was excited to preach this passage. I was like, it's like a quarter of the size of what I've typically been preaching, and I don't have to talk about circumcision. Yes, give it to me. And then I was like, crap, I have to talk about orgies. Um, So here we are. Orgies in the text and in this culture, what's going on here are a bunch of, they were a bunch of banquets held in honor for Greek gods, and it involved a lot of drinking, a lot of feasting, a lot of eating, and a lot of like ritual sex Basically, it was this picture and just flat-out picture of just indulgence, of excess living and feeding the flesh. And so it's interesting that both of these two are paired together because think about uh, the word drunkenness alone. Why do you typically drink alcohol? To escape, to feel good, right? You are looking to have a good time. You're trying to create for yourself a different reality. Either you are sorrowful, you're sad, you're stressed, and you want to escape from that, so it's like alcohol could maybe fix that, or you're feeling great, and you just want to take things to the next level. You're looking to create a new reality for yourself. You're indulging yourself because you want to create a new reality, and that is a sign that you're broken and being driven by your flesh. Um, So in summary, you've got these four categories, but if you want to put it just really simply, and we're going to compare and contrast the flesh and the spirit, the flesh, all this revolves around making much of and prioritizing prioritizing yourself, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. The flesh and all of its desires and all of what Paul calls the works of the flesh make much of and prioritize the self. And let's take a moment just to call to attention what these things lead to. I'm going to throw up James chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 up here for you. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Another heavy tone. The desire of your flesh leads to sin, and sin leads to death. That is reality. So these disordered desires will inevitably lead to your own destruction. You follow them, and you will never experience the wholeness or the life that you so desperately crave and are searching for. Now, just to skip ahead a little bit, let's go to chapter 6 in Galatians, verse 8. I'm stealing from Asher's sermon. Sorry, uh, dude, I'm taking this from you. Uh, But look at verse 8. The first part of it says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And then Romans 6, verse 21 says this. I want to put this up here for you. It says, But what fruit were you getting? At that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, these works of the flesh, for the end of those things is death. What Paul is highlighting in both of these verses, this is him speaking in both, is a simple law of returns, right? You reap what you will sow. We're all familiar with that phrase, right? And we're all familiar with a bunch of other phrases that highlight the law of returns. What goes up must come down. You plant an apple seed, you'll get an apple tree. What goes around comes around. There's so many. You get what you pay for. Uh, if you can get your entire university to rally around the hypnotoad, your team will go undefeated. These things are common sense. They are just a simple law of returns. And Paul is saying you're going to reap what you sow. If you sow an apple seed, you get an apple tree. If you sow the seed of a thorn bush, you're going to reap a what? A thorn bush. If you sow to the flesh, you are going to reap corruption. 
you're going to reap destruction. It's going to lead to death. That is just reality and simple law of returns. So the flesh, to keep adding to this list, makes much of and prioritizes yourself, and the fruit that it produces is corruption and death in your life. So now that we're all appropriately down and defeated, uh, let's talk about the spirit. Does does that sound lighter and better? Um, Which, by the way, I wanted to start with the flesh simply to highlight the necessity of the spirit, right? I want to start with this because it highlights, holy crap, I cannot do anything in and of myself. Only everything that I do, these works of the flesh that we all are familiar with and experience are only going to lead to corruption and death. I need the Spirit of God to help me and change the story. And so now let's talk about the Spirit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What an easier thing to read, right? But also how good are we at actually doing these things? Um, Here's a one thing to know. I'm going to skip around. I'm putting a lot of scripture at you, but I hope you enjoy it and you're following along. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he's saying if you are in Christ, you have been given his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells within you. So what we see is that we all have these desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Those things are in us. They are obvious. They are evident. We almost can't escape them. But what we see is that if you are in Christ, you now have the Holy Spirit and his desires in you too at the same time. And why? Because you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to talk a ton about who the Holy Spirit is per se. We're going to talk a lot about the fruit and his desires and how he works in our life. If you're like, man, who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? Um, then Ben, this past Wednesday, preached at Renovate all about who the Holy Spirit is and what his, uh, his role is. And if you want to, I highly recommend going to listen to that podcast. You can find it on the link in our Instagram bio. It's so good. He does like a Rocky Balboa interpret- impersonation. It's kind of weird, but it kind of hit home. Um, it's Ben. But go listen to that. So we're not going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. We're going to talk about the fruit and his desires. Now, first thing I want you to notice about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit not the fruits, right? It's singular, not plural. This isn't Paul's version of a Christian self-help book. Hey, practice these nine things and you will become a better Christian, right? No, this is Paul saying this is the one thing that will be produced in your life if you're denying yourself and following Jesus. Again, if you sow an apple seed, what do you get? You get an apple tree. You don't get an apple tree and then a random orange tree. That would be weird. You get an apple tree. Paul is saying if you sow to the Spirit, this is the singular fruit that you will get. And they are all integrated. They are all interconnected. So if you are looking at this and you say, man, I've got love in my life, but you're not patient and you're not kind and you're not gentle with the people around you, then you don't really have the love that you think that you do. You're kind of missing it. And think about those kinds of things too, being patient, gentle, kind, and loving, right? Those things aren't about you. They're for the benefit of other people. You're being kind towards someone else, right? So to contrast, to continue contrast, the flesh, which is about you, the spirit makes much of God and prioritizes other people, right? The fruit of the spirit is always going to make much of God and it's going to prioritize other people. It is for other people's benefit that you are gentle with them, that you are kind and that you are loving and patient with them. Um, And to continue the contrast, look at what these things lead to. Look at what, uh, what these lead to. I, I 
jumped to Galatians 6 verse 8, and I read the first part, but look at how the rest of that verse ends if you have it in front of you. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Great, that got us down, but look at how it ends. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then I showed you Romans 6 verse 21. The next verse, verse 22, says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. And again, here we see it, eternal life. So the flesh leads to death. The spirit, the fruit that it produces, leads to eternal life. And just a quick nugget of theology on eternal life. We tend to think eternal life is uh, a quantity thing, right? Life forever with Jesus and his kingdom. And that, that's true. That is good. I preach that all the time. Life forever. Eternal life is not just quantity of life, but it's also a quality of life that you get to experience right here, right now. That is what the Spirit produces in you. It's not just quantity, it is quality, and you get to experience that right now, and that is what you get to reap when you sow to the Spirit. So here's where I want to start um, encouraging you and challenging you. If talking about the flesh was all to highlight the necessity of the Spirit, then I hope the rest of this highlights the sufficiency of the Spirit. Um, remember that the first, the first verse that we opened up with, verse 16, if you want to go back to it, and I'll throw it up for you, uh, says this. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Look at the word choice there, will not gratify. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the flesh. It doesn't say you should not gratify the flesh, like you might not, doesn't even say you probably won't gratify the desires of the flesh if you walk in the Spirit. It says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It is pointing to a promise and a reality that if you walk by the Spirit, there's no room for the flesh, right? Because the Spirit is in the business of reordering our desires, right? And even giving us new desires that lead to the wholeness that we were created for, which is just kind of what God does, by the way. He is in the business of taking broken things and restoring them, of bringing life from death. And so if we let it, the Spirit brings about a whole new life and a whole new way of living that looks totally different than a flesh-driven life. And you cannot live both ways at the same time. You're doing one or the other. Now, with that said, what I don't want you to hear is that if you walk by the Spirit and you get it down and you're like, man, that's what it looks like to be a varsity Christian, which again, there's no such thing as that. But if you walk by the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again. We live in a fallen, broken world. You will. You will walk out of step. You will inevitably sin again. And when you do, and when you do gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh, it's just a sign that, holy crap, I'm being driven by my flesh again. I need to go back and keep in step with the Spirit. And so what does it actually mean to keep in step with the Spirit? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Um, how many of you like to scribble in your Bibles? You ready to highlight and journal and circle some things? Yeah, cool. Uh, me too. I think that's a good thing to do. Verse 16, I want you to scribble all over. Well, not scribble. I want you to circle, highlight, underline, whatever it is that you're into. Um, walk by the Spirit. I'm going to give you a couple others, and I'll repeat them, so don't worry if I go too fast. Verse 18, I want you to circle, highlight, underline, led by the Spirit. Then in verse 25, there's going to be two here. I want you to do the same with live by the Spirit and then keep in step with the Spirit. So verse 16, you see walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, led by the Spirit. And then verse 25, you see live by and keep in step with. 
So hopefully you look at all those and you can kind of put them around, receive them all together at once. And you see that they're kind of synonymous. Hopefully that gives you a good understanding of what Paul is getting at, of what it means to walk by and be led by and live by. This is what it looks like. And so I think those words are helpful when you can see them all at once. But then here's also a little more Bible nerd trivia for you. The word walk in the Greek translates to this word uh, peripateo. And peripateo means, by definition, to walk. Imagine that. Uh, Direct translation. It's pretty pretty great. Specifically, it is used in the context of um, someone walking around and following around a teacher. So a Jew following around their rabbi, right? Which is another word for teacher. Or in the same way, if you're not a Jew and following the way of Jesus or anything like that, and you don't believe in the one true God, you might be a student of philosophy. You would still walk around and follow your, uh, your teacher, that was just what people did. They would walk around them. Uh, they would be around them at all times, do everything that they did. They would just learn from them and watch their lives, be around them constantly in the hopes that one day they could become like them and that they could be the teacher one day. And so think about Jesus and his disciples, right? He calls his disciples to him. He's like, hey, Pete, you look good. Come on, John, you too. Let's go leave your nets behind. And he calls his disciples. And then what do they do? They walk around a lot. Part of that's because they didn't have cars, but they still are walking. They're walking from town to town to town, being around Jesus constantly, going into homes with him, eating meals with him. They're around him constantly, watching his life, hoping one day to become like him and to experience the life that he is teaching about. And so that's just one way that I want you to think about walking around or walking by the Spirit. You now have Jesus, not in the flesh. You don't have to walk around him. He now lives in you. How sweet is that? Um, another way to think about it is keeping in step with, right? Think about um, how many of you are in ROTC or like have ever been in a marching band or anything like that? No one? Okay, cool. This might flunk then. Uh, okay, one person over there. Uh, if you have seen a marching band or an army corps or a unit or whatever, you know exactly what it looks like to keep in step with, right? And if you've ever been in ROTC or any of those things, you have to walk in the same way as everybody else in the same like lockstep with each other. And if you don't, you get yelled at by your drill sergeant. But what it is, is this picture of unification, right? We are all going in the same direction at the same time, at the same rate, in the same manner, the same fashion, the same way. It's this idea of being unified with one another. So keeping in step with the Spirit, I want you to think of that kind of unification. You are in lockstep with his desires. You let his desires become your desires. And Paul says, if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I get that that all sounds great and lovely, and you're sitting there thinking, yes, Nathan, amen, let's walk by the Spirit. Sounds great, right? No? Okay, I'll imagine it. Um, Regardless, I want you to take a second, and I want you to think back to those moments between your impulse and your action. What do you typically do in those moments? In the moment when you are annoyed with someone and all you want to do is be frustrated with them and run your head through that brick wall over there, um, but you hear that little voice telling you not to, do you yield to the spirit or do you white knuckle a grip around your frustration and you force that loving, kind smile around them? And is that the same thing? Or what about in the moment when those lustful desires come up again and you're alone? Or when you're feeling super insecure about your body and all you want to do is pull the trig on your last meal. Or when you swore that you never were going to drink again or get drunk or get blackout, but man, that drink sounds so good right about now. In those moments, do you typically splash cold water on your face, 
slap yourself in the face, pull yourself up by the bootstraps the old American way and try and distract yourself with something else? Or do you ask the Spirit for help? You see, I'm not telling you these things or reminding you of those things, having you think about them to make you feel bad about yourself at all, but I do want to highlight that it is easy to have the desire to walk by the Spirit. But it's another thing entirely to do it when we find ourselves in those moments between impulse and action. And more often than not, when those moments come, we tend to operate out of the belief that our willpower is the solution, that we are the solution. Uh, This teacher, pastor, writer named John Mark Comer talks a lot about this, about resisting the three enemies of the soul, which is something early church fathers have always talked about, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And specifically when talking about fighting the flesh, uh, he talks about this. He always highlights that willpower isn't necessarily a bad thing and that you shouldn't ever use it. He says when willpower works, you should use it. In fact, he argues that as you follow Jesus, your capacity to use it will grow and expand. And things that once were excruciatingly difficult and required constant vigilance and lots of accountability to resist should hopefully become easier as you're being formed into the image of Jesus and being led by the Spirit. But then he goes on. He says that willpower versus a second cookie, or in my case, against a cookies and cream milkshake, right, is one thing. It's one thing to use willpower in those moments. But willpower versus addiction, or willpower versus an unhealed, deep-seated wound, it won't stand a chance. He says as long as temptation is just interfacing with the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex, willpower is a great resource to draw on. But the moment that we're dealing with the amygdala, the part of the brain that is hardwired in sinful ways, there is a rut that your brain goes down, or the soul that is deeply wounded, then you are outmanned and outgunned by the flesh. And if you're trying to use willpower against your self-defeating behavior that's rooted in trauma or addiction, and you feel like you're failing, don't beat yourself up. Just change your strategy. Willpower is not the answer to your problem. So the takeaway I want to give you from that is that overcoming the flesh is not about relying solely on your willpower. Use it when it works, but more often than not, it typically doesn't work. You've got to rely on the power of the Spirit. But let's get a little more practical. How do we do this? How do we overcome the flesh? How do we resist it and fight it? How do we sow to the Spirit? Um, First, Simply, you have to recognize what to resist. This is where we're going to start getting kind of practical. You've got to recognize and be aware of the battle you're facing, what you're up against, right? So look at the works of the flesh that we read, that exhaustive list that's kind of calling you out, and which ones resonate with you, right? Just start there. Which ones resonate with you? What am I up against? What is it in my life? Is it the sexuality? Is it the relationship thing? What is it um, that I'm up against? Which ones resonate with me? Recognize and come to grips with the reality, too, that those desires, those works of the flesh will destroy you if you let them. And you don't have to let them. You can crucify them. And that's the second thing that you get to do. You get to kill your sin. Uh, Look at Galatians 5, verse 24. This is beautiful. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. A beautiful reality that if you belong to Christ, the sin has already been dealt with. The death is no more. It doesn't have a grip on you anymore like we just sang about. It has happened. It is finished. Those things have been nailed to a cross. The works of the flesh are dead if you belong to Christ. That word have, it's past 
tense. But how do you belong to Christ? Ephesians 2 says it's by grace through faith, right? And like that verse that we read earlier, Ephesians 1, says you believe that. You believe that the God of the universe saw you, that, that he saw the works of your flesh. He said those things are ugly and, and I love you anyways. Yes, they are destroying you and I love you enough to pull you out of that. That is the gospel. And you believe that and you're sealed with his Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. And in light of that, he asks you to surrender everything, right? And now take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, do what I did, go die, go crucify yourself. Um, here's an interesting picture that someone once shared with me before, kind of related to this. Um, the Crusades happened way back when, which we get a lot wrong about, but then also they were like really tra uh, tragic and horrendous. But here's an interesting thing. The Crusades, right? Think of King Arthur and knights, right? Big swords, armor, all that kind of stuff. Before these knights would go on a crusade, they would get baptized. It was like kind of their, their send-off. They would get baptized in their full body of armor. It was kind of like an epic thing. But what would happen is when they would go under, under the water, in their full armor, all of them would go under except for they would unsheath their sword and hold it above the water. And it was as if to say, Lord, you can have all of me except for this part. This part I'm not going to give up to you. And think about how often we do that in our own lives. Lord, you, I, it is no longer I who live, right? It's Christ who lives in me. I belong to you. My life is no longer my own. You can have all of me except for this part. You can have 99%, but not this 1%. I'm not willing to give it up. And the call of Jesus is to crucify everything. Kill all of your sin. Not just some of it, not most of it, but all of it. Um, so when the ways of the old life bubble up and the desires of the flesh come up in those moments of impulse, we are to remember that we've died to our sin and continue to crucify it, continue to mortify it, to continue to kill it. And if that sounds daunting, it is. But hear me say, if you're intimidated by that, you have the power to do it. If you belong to Christ, you have the spirit in you and you have the power to do it. And let me offer you a first step and a place to start. Looks like confession. If you don't know where to, to start, start with confession. And I get that some of you in here might be like, oh, I don't want to do that. That sounds gross, cringy, vulnerable. It is vulnerable, but it's not cringy. It's actually very restorative for your soul. Uh, there's this guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's dead now, sorry. Um, but in one of my favorite books ever, he's the author of this book called Life Together. And it is a book all of you should read. It's super short, super small, and very worthwhile, but it's beautiful. But in it, talking about confession, he says this. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin will be over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed or the unconfessed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So if you don't know where to start with crucifying your sin, you've got to start with confession of bringing it into the light. And let me give you two ways that you've got to do that if you've never done this before. You've got to do it vertically and you've got to do it horizontally. Vertically meaning before the Lord and horizontally meaning before other people. Vertically before the Lord. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. It says, If we confess our sins, he, referring to God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is beautiful. He says, just confess it and I will forgive it. Our God is a God of forgiveness. So you've got to take care of things before the Lord vertically, right? You've got to confess there, but you've also got to do it with another believer uh, horizontally, right? Look at James chapter 5 verse 16. It says, therefore, 
confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, right? It is restorative to your soul. Don't think of it as a, uh, don't get me wrong, don't think of it as a therapeutic tool just to make you feel better about yourself. It's a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual discipline and a part of the process of pursuing Jesus and walking by the Spirit. And last little nug on this. Remember that the gospel, right, is death to life. And so if you're putting something to death, something is being resurrected in its place. Law of returns. It's kind of how it works. Because of the gospel, the truth that you live in and the reality you get to experience is this. Crucifying something in you leads to resurrecting something new in you. You kill anger, and compassion will grow in its place. You kill sexual immorality and or indulgence, and self-control will grow in its place. Kill the flesh, deny it, crucify it, and the fruit of the Spirit will grow in its place. So, last little nugget. You've got to cultivate life in the Spirit if you want that to happen, right? And I can't help but think of that without thinking of John 15, which is this idea of abide. If the Spirit is what makes us alive, then we've got to keep in step with it. We've got to walk with it. Um, And here's how John 15 paints that picture. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we want that eternal life, that quantity and quality of life with Jesus, we've got to stay connected to Jesus. And that looks like all sorts of ways. It looks like confessing your sin for sure, but also reading his word. It looks like prayer. It looks like all of these spiritual practices, which I could go on for for hours, but we'll kind of stop there. And here's here's what I want to leave on. I want to recognize that there are some of you in this room that, again, are like, Nathan, this all sounds great. Like, I get it, but I've tried. I'm in Christ, and I've tried, but I'm still stuck in this habitual sin, and I can't get out of it. I've tried accountability. I've tried praying. I've tried all these things but I can't get out of it. What do I do? This, you don't understand me. You don't know where I'm at. Yes, I do. I've been there. There's even parts of my life that are still there. And what I've tended to recognize is that in those moments, I either believe or don't believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough and sufficient enough to end those things and end those patterns and end that sin and kill that sin right here, right now. So my question to you, if that's you, is do you believe that? Because typically, I tend to believe one day, eventually, he will kill those things, and I won't be like that anymore. But do you believe he has the power to do that right here, right now, not just eventually? And also, I recognize that that leads you into shame, and if that's you, don't go there. You are not defined by your sin. Your identity is not your flesh. You have been adopted into the family of God if you're in Christ, and you are called beloved son and daughter. So to you, I just want to encourage you to take it one day at a time, just today, just this afternoon, this Sunday afternoon. And then you wake up in the morning and you remember that the love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end and they are new every morning. And he's faithful to equip and empower you to go one more day with moment by moment grace through the power of the Spirit. My hope and prayer for all of us in this room is that we all live this way, that our lives are built around that truth. And as a result, our lives reflect the restorative work and the character of God. And so that's my hope and prayer. Um, Let me pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you um, specifically just for giving us your son and your spirit.
we thank you that you loved us enough in our sin. You loved us despite all of that. You saw the, what it led to and what it was doing and the selfishness of it all. And you said, I love you anyways, and I'm going to make a way for you to not be trapped by those things anymore. By sending your son to die on a cross and then walk out of the grave. And we thank you for giving us your spirit to empower us to put those former things to death. Thank you for that opportunity in our lives, Lord. And I just pray that by your spirit, you would lead us to identify and recognize the things that are keeping us from life with you. What are those desires? Help us identify them and Lord, just help us surrender them. In this next moment, as we sing this next song, as we're walking home or in our car, Lord, would you bring those things to mind by your spirit and would you help us surrender them? And would our response just be, Father, my life is yours. That is my prayer for each of us in this room. Father, we love you, we need you, and we trust you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.